Hello folks, welcome to Naval Month on the Napoleon Assist, as voted for by my Patreon supporters. I've got a quick favour to ask. If you enjoy the episode, drop a like, subscribe, and how about sharing or leaving a review? It'll take you a few seconds, but it makes a huge difference in helping to reach a wider audience. As ever, if you're interested in going even further to support the podcast, check out the links in in the description to discover how you can become a supporter, the perks that are involved, and how you can leave a one-off tip. Thank you all for your incredible support as we close in on 75,000 downloads and enjoy the show. Hello and welcome back to the Napoleonesis. It's the 21st of October so no prizes what we're doing today. Yes, it's the big one. We are looking at the Battle of Trafalgar, but not Trafalgar as you know it, because we are going to myth bust Trafalgar and in the process completely rewrite everything that you thought you knew about the battle. Joining me to do exactly that is Dr. John Morwood. John has a long and distinguished CV in this field. He's the Honourable Secretary of the Waterloo Association, a brilliant organisation which is very close to my heart. And he does a lot of work kind of educating the public with talks all about matters to do with naval stuff. He was the co-author of HMS Vanguard at the Nile, The Men, the Ships and the Battle. And although generally is kind of thought of as a a cavalryman or a heavy cavalryman um, in terms of his, that's that's not a kind of some kind of aspersion, I hasten to add. He's his his expertise. Actually, it's the Navy that is really um, his kind of wheelhouse, as it were, which is an appropriate naval analogy. John, welcome to the Napoleon Assist. How are you doing? Zach, that's absolutely wonderful and very fulsome and I'm sure um, too fulsome. Uh, Welcome, but absolutely wonderful and great to be with everybody. So let's dive in. The really basic one, Trafalgar. Is it just about a battle? No, it's not. And a lot of people kind of make that mistake. Oh, they go, oh, yeah, but so by the 22nd of October, it's it's all over. Um, and it, it all starts on the 21st of October. No, 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 people. So enlighten us. It's an entire campaign in its own right, isn't it? Yes, you're absolutely right. And, you, you know, you can argue that the actual campaign starts in July 1804. And it certainly doesn't end until the 4th of November 1805. And we are talking here about a campaign of three battles, one sortie, and of course, the impact of the storm. And again, we need to cover that because that's a bit not really appreciated. But spot on, everybody concentrates on battle number two in the series. And you can understand that in a way because it is the largest fleet action of the whole French Revolutionary and Napoleonic Wars. But nevertheless, it's only one out of three battles. Absolutely. And we'll dive, you touched on a whole host of themes in there that we are definitely going to dive into. Why do you, I mean, this is kind of a a leading question. Is it just that Nelson dies? That means we're straight away drawn to 21st October. Do you think that's it? I think that's very, very true. I think you, you have... In a way, uh, there's a lot of myths about Trafalgar, and it falls into the same sort of myths as the Spanish Armada and the Battle of Britain. It's Britain with its back against the wall, fighting against all the odds, and in the dying moments of victory, the commander dies. It's great romantic. It fits in very much, I suppose, into the growth of romanticism in that period that we're talking of. But yes, a lot of it has to do with that issue. It is of infinite importance as a battle, but we tend to romanticise it. And the death of Nelson plays a great part in that. Yeah, it does kind of lend itself to a certain Hollywood-esque kind of style, doesn't it? You know, the, the guy's in the moment of victory and then, bang, he's dead. And, you know, it's, it's all kind of very sad and, and so on. And then, you know, cut to credits. Um, but as you say, there's a hell of a lot more to it. So let's start unpacking this. The wider campaign, this is key and I think is often missed because it goes literally from one side of the Atlantic to the other and then back again. So how do we get to the point where there is a battle off of Cape Trafalgar? Okay, so 
Let, let's sort of start and then work our way through on this one. The original invasion plan by Napoleon, in his view, all he needs is a couple of hours. He's worked out he needs 10 hours to transport anything between 90 and 130,000 men across the channel. He thinks he can do that simply by the channel fleet under Cornwall is being blown off station. By July 1804, he's realised it's not that simple. He's finally listened to people and he's observed a problem. He knows he needs at least three days without that Channel Fleet actually being there. And people have impressed on him that he needs to take proactive measures to get that Channel Fleet out of the way. And so what then happens is a set of plans produced. Now, the one that you and I know and our listeners know is actually plan number five. There are various other plans put forward by Napoleon through his naval minister, a guy called de Cres, to actually get that channel fleet off station. But the one that we are used to, that he puts together probably February, March 1805, works as follows. One key thing to mention, well, there's two key things to mention. Firstly, by this February, March 1805, he's lost his two most capable French naval commanders. They have died. That is the commander of Toulon, Touche Treville, and the commander of the flotilla, Wabrui. If both of those had survived up to October 1805, different set of scenarios in play here. The second thing, of course, is from December 1804, Spain is now an ally of France's. Napoleon can bring in the Spanish element, which he couldn't before. So the cunning plan put in February, March 1805 goes like this. The new appointed, and we'll talk about a lot about him later, Villeneuve, commander of the Toulon fleet, his task is to avoid Nelson commanding the British Mediterranean fleet, get to Cadiz, pick up some of the, the Spanish ships that he can now call on, sail to the West Indies and wait. At the same time, the commander of the Brest fleet, and we must remember the Brest fleet is the main French fleet, usually outnumbers the Mediterranean fleet by two to one in numbers. So Gantio, who's the commander of the French uh, Brest fleet, his orders are to sail down pick up a lot of ships that are in Ferrol, which is a port next to Corona, and sail to the West Indies and join up with Villeneuve, a French squadron under a guy called Mizizi, and then that whole overwhelming force of perhaps 60 ships, perhaps 65, is going to sail towards the English Channel and simply by weight of numbers push away the British channel fleet and allow that to happen. This, of course, doesn't happen for two reasons. One, Napoleon gets bored and orders Massisi and the squadron he sent to the West Indies to return to Europe. The second thing that goes wrong is Gantillon can't get out of Brest. So what Villeneuve does is Villeneuve does his part of the bargain. Goes, he leaves uh, Toulon with only 11 ships and 4,800 soldiers. That's important because 11 ships, but Trafalgar is 33 at his disposal. Where do the rest come from? So he sails with 11 ships. He picks up at, at uh, Spain seven more ships under the command of Gravina, the top Spanish admiral. So there's 18 ships heading to the West Indies where they'll join by some others. But Gantillon and the press fleet don't show up. So after waiting for, in accordance with his instructions, wait until Gantillon turns up, Villeneuve now finds, having spent three weeks doing nothing at all, that Nelson is on his tail. So what Villeneuve now does is Villeneuve sails back across the Atlantic. And his plan is to continue what Bonaparte told him to do, sail up, help Gantio get out of Brest. And he's met on the 22nd of July by Admiral Calder with a detachment from the British fleet at Brest. And this is the infamous Battle of Cape Finisterre. And in this battle, which is fought in fairness to Calder, during foggy conditions in the evening, 
Calder takes two of those seaworthy ships. They're both Spanish. And then the problem is Calder should have re-engaged over the next two days. He doesn't. And Villeneuve brilliantly gets into El Ferrol and adds more ships to his command. And what he actually does is he adds another 11. So he's now up to 27 game, much closer to 33. But those 11 ships he's added have not been across the Atlantic and back again. They are not that seaworthy. More importantly, they haven't got the experience. The other problem that Villeneuve has got is because he's fought this battle at Cape Finisterre, he's used up a lot of ammunition. So he's actually going to restock with gunpowder from the Spanish arsenal at El Perol. Spanish gunpowder is notoriously less good than British gunpowder. It's 20% less in potency. French gunpowder is 10% less in potency. So now a lot of ships have got gunpowder that isn't of the right quality. Villeneuve then is faced with, I've got 27 ships, so I've got more than I had originally. Shall I go up to Brest? And unbelievably, he decides not to. A rumour comes in saying there's some ships on their way down here. It's probably the British Channel fleet. Actually, it's not. It's a merchant convoy. But Villeneuve doesn't reconnoitre. And so instead of going north, he goes south to safety to Cadiz, where he picks up more ships, again, that have been bottled up in port where we haven't got any real experience on one fleet action or sailing. So he's bottled up there. He's a, he arrives in um, Cadiz on the uh, 21st of August and uh, he waits. On 28th of September, he finally gets some, an instruction from Napoleon saying, look, um, it's quite obvious you're not coming up to the channel any longer. Therefore, what I want you to do is, with your troops, that instantly Villeneuve never landed in the West Indies, so 4,800 troops taken across the Atlantic, brought back again. Um, we're going to make a demonstration on the Isle of Sicily. Take the ships through the Strait of Gibraltar. On the 6th of October, there is a very heated council of war on Villeneuve's flagship, Bussantor. It isn't everybody. The French have a delegation, the Spanish have a delegation. Um, to say swords are drawn is absolutely true. The, uh, both sides accuse the other of cowardice. There is no love lost here between the French and the Spanish captains. And Gravina has to pacify measures. But what comes out of that is a memorandum that says, on behalf of everybody, we aren't going to sail. We're only going to sail if... The forces outside, blockading us, are reduced in numbers. And that is agreed. And that's what Villeneuve sends to Paris. And that's where he stands until he finds out that he's being replaced. Napoleon's had enough, he sends down in the brow. And Villeneuve decides that honour is bound here. He also picks up information that Nelson's had to send some ships for um, refuelling Gibraltar. And so Villeneuve decides but contrary to the memorandum that's been submitted, he will now leave Cadiz and sail towards Gibraltar. And he tries it on the 18th, he tries it on the 19th, he fails to do so by the wind, and he finally sails on the 20th of October. And that's that. We've set the scene now for the Battle of Trafalgar itself. Wow. What a catalogue of screw-ups along the way. It's very, very similar to what I was hearing from Nick Kaiser in the, about on the British side in the War of 1812, people and personalities and egos. So Villeneuve, is it fair to say that Villeneuve ends up fighting Trafalgar in part because of his ego and the fact that he's desperate to retain his command? Yes, it is. Yeah, absolutely. Wow. He, he, he's one of his old friends, one of his old chums, is de Cresse, the French Minister of Marine. And when the final um, letter comes from de Cresse, who basically says, look, you've got to understand, this guy's on his way, you're going to hand over his command. Villeneuve actually responds to de Cresse and says, thank you for delaying this. Uh, you have brought 
total respect for my honour, I now have a chance of retrieving it. So yes, on this man's vanity, this situation now evolves. You're spot on. I mean, talk. I almost want to say talk about going going out in a blaze of glory, but it's <laughs> it's not particularly glorious. As we'll we'll move on to this. Well, not for the French and the Spanish anyway. Um, okay, so incredible uh, outline of, of what happens. Thank you for that, John. We've now got to Trafalgar Day and Nelson's battle plan. Now this one, it's it's a very kind of famous, or at least in popular, um, kind of telling it's a very famous sort of straighten at them, classically Nelsonian, inverted commas for the classically Nelsonian, two lines, cut the French fleet into sections, leave them scrambling in a pell-mell battle that follows. But how new was that technique? This is a really, really great question. And one of the problems we've got here is we have, and I think as historians we failed here until very, very recently, we've simplified this to, and it is now, we've simplified it to the point of absurdity. So let's deal with some of the key aspects. Nelson is totally of the belief and correct, although the absolute numbers are different, that the Franco-Spanish fleet outnumbers his ships. That bit is true. We now know a number of things that our predecessors didn't know before. We have got the records of two, two conversations Nelson has in that period when he's still in England, where he outlines what he will do. Another thing we have found, well, within the last 20 years by the late lamented Colin White was Nelson's actual sketch on the back of one of his letters saying what he was going to do. It's not easy to understand, but Colin deciphered it. And what we've also now got is a greater appreciation of the memorandum that Nelson actually sent out to his officers and they sent out to their officers. We have ship's logs, which we didn't have before from some of the French, French and Spanish ships. And we've also got a log of the master for victory that anybody worth his salt should have read and realized what the implications of this were. So we know a lot more now, but this is, if we just take it as everybody thinks, it's going to break the line. Is that new? No, it's not. Of course it's not. Rodney did it at the Ile de Sainte in 1782. This idea of uh, bringing about a pell-mell battle, is that new? No, of course it's not, because Hawke did it at the Battle of Quiberon Bay, the impossible victory in the, uh, you know, the, the late autumn winter of 1759. But that's not really Nelson's plan, in a sense. It's how he gets into that position. So let's look at what he's planning to do. The first thing he does is he traps Villeneuve. Villeneuve moves when he does come to Cadiz, heads towards Gibraltar, and then there is a panic moment when he realises the British fleet are there, and he turns around. In the old days, Nelson would have been sailing parallel to Villeneuve. He's not. What is radical about Nelson is, if you imagine, he's all the British ships lined up side by side, facing towards the Franco-Spanish fleet. If Villeneuve goes towards Gibraltar, it doesn't matter, we've got him. If he turns around and heads back to Cadiz, it doesn't matter, we've got him. All we need to do is head straight. That is new. The second thing about the plan is Nelson's not planning actually to break the line in two. He's breaking the line in three places. That's the plan. And the real importance of this is it's and it is clinical. And I think in our desire to portray this as being, you know, Nelson just going, let's charge, guys. Nelson is not a custom. This is cold and brutal. Nelson's plan is to take out the French commander-in-chief because he knows if he takes that out, the French, the whole Franco-Spanish fleet will not be able to communicate. The French commander-in-chief, by tradition, is at the centre of the line. Therefore... What Nelson will do is one line on the Collingwood will be targeting the rear of the Franco-Spanish fleet. Nelson has turned around and said to Collingwood, break them at the 12th from the rear position. 
That's not going to happen as we find out. His second line, which will be him, the victory, will be to take out the French commander-in-chief's ship when he can find out where that is. The third column is designed to break the line for ships in front of Nelson. And what that is designed to do is the ban of the Franco-Spanish fleet, when it sees these three columns coming towards, will put on more sail and sail away, which means it will take longer for them to turn round. So there's three breaks here with the aim of taking out the French commander-in-chief. The next thing that is really, really revolutionary here is Nelson is trying for the first time in naval warfare to put together an idea that was talked about by French naval strategists called the Lord in the 1760s and was also talked about by Rodney, was talked about by the great Comte de Suffren, top French naval commander in the American War of Independence. This was the idea of actually breaking the enemy's line by a powerful arrowhead made up of your most powerful and your fastest sailing ships. In other words, it's rather like a articulated lorry smashing into a car. And that had not been tried before. This is what Nelson will actually do to Falga with his column. The final thing that is revolutionary about this is he devolves total command of his second column to Collingwood and simply turns around and says, the second command will have the entire direction of his line to make the attack upon the enemy. In other words, this is mission control in its purest. Immediately, he does say to Collingwood, break them at the 12th from Berea, but otherwise, how you do that is up to you. And this is where, putting all this together, this is why this is a very, very radical plan. Now, of course, it isn't going to work out quite like that, as I guess we're going to talk about. Absolutely, that whole thing about how no plan survives first contact with the enemy. But this is, I, I, I like this version of the plan. It's more intelligent rather than just sort of battering ram and smash your way through and sort of almost cavalry-esque in its um, formulation. This is much more kind of clinical and, and almost surgical in, in what it's attempting to achieve. How does it go down? Because we have this perception of Nelson being blindly followed to hell and back again by his captains. But there is a, a, if you like, a council of war. He sits down and lays it all out to them. Does he have that blind obedience or is there disquiet about this plan? Nelson is very, very clever. I mean, one of the things we don't realise about this whole Trafalgar campaign is that of the ship's captains, the 27 ships of the line, let's forget the frigates, etc., et cetera, 27 ships of the line, um, the real issue that we've got here is that the bulk of those have not served with Nelson before. He doesn't know them. The ships that he'd taken from um, the Mediterranean, across the Atlantic, back again, some of them are still under his command, some have been detached for supplies. So the bulk of these guys are people that he does not know and have not served. They have come from the Channel Fleet, which, of course, is an area that Nelson had never served in in his military career. So they have to be, they know his reputation. Everybody knows his reputation. But he's got to convince them that this is the right thing to do. And that's why this detailed plan, he actually has them all over. Once the victory, they talk about this. Nelson is a proverbial war gamer. I mean, the Battle of the Nile is already war game before you get to the actual battle itself. What are we going to do? If we do it this way, what could they do? Well, then, shall we do it like that? And by the way, if we get to here, can we do this a different way? Everything has been discussed through. And what Nelson is very meticulous about, and this is why we've got to really, really got to get rid of this daredevil approach and understand we are dealing with somebody who can do that, that is very cold and very clinical. The one thing he does that Villeneuve never does is after he has a council of war, he follows it in detailed writing, which of course is what happens nowadays. So we've had this meeting, this is what's been agreed, this is what you will do. And it's that meticulous planning but really electrifies the, the, the naval captains. 
they realized, those ones that have not served with Nelson before, realized this is why this guy is as good as he is. He can inspire us, but my God, look at the detail of his plan. And you've got this feeling in the British fleet, his statement of, like, it might be hyperbole to Emma, you know, people shed tears, blah, blah, blah. Everybody agrees, and everybody's convinced, unlike the Franco-Spanish fleet, that they will win the next day. The next days. And what is very telling is there is a set of letters of a poor midshipman who isn't going to survive the Falga, but he's on board the victory. And he writes a letter home to his mum and dad two days before the battle. And he says, this is going to be a glorious day. We will win. There's nobody in the British fleet who thinks they're going to lose this battle. If you flip it over to the other side, nobody in the Franco-Spanish fleet feels they're going to win to Falga. And that automatically is a very different mindset. Which is quite staggering, considering that, you know, they, they do have the advantage of numbers. Um, because we, we've touched on it already, 33 ships in the Franco-Spanish fleet. And it's 20... 27, 20, you're absolutely right. 27, so 33 plus 27, yes. So uh, not a vast advantage, but when you consider the weight of firepower and the weight of sheer metal that's being fired by oh. one of these ships, it's it's substantial. You know, you, it you, is. I am very pleased you have mentioned that because the number of uh, guns and the amount of firepower that the Franco-Spanish fleet does have. All right, there may be only six ships more, but remember, you have got things like the Santissima Trinidad, the biggest warship in the world, a four-decker, for goodness sake, in this lot. The amount of, the, the number of guns and the actual tonnage of firepower you've got, there is a marked difference between British fleet and the Franco-Spanish fleet. But morale is a very different factor. So you've talked about the plan and you've you kind of teased us with, well, this is the idea, but it doesn't quite end up happening like that. So give us the reality, because I know that you looked a lot at the kind of the evidence of how things don't actually play out in the way that we're led to believe of these two lines steamering in and, and then breaking apart and kind of creating this pell-mell engagement. There are a number of things that don't go according to plan. Because although you may have planned in detail as a British fleet commander, you're also dependent on what your opposite number is going to do. And what causes a real problem for us is that when the Villeneuve decides he's going to turn tail and head back to Cadiz, he orders his ships to turn around. Now, we would think that is normal. That's what would normally happen. But unfortunately, remember, a lot of these ships have had no actual sailing experience. So the line doesn't turn perfectly. Villeneuve's cunning plan of having a separate squadron of what's called observation under Gravina, which can then actually um, deploy where it's needed, doesn't happen. The ships get mixed up. Some turn faster than others. Many lose their stations. And the Franco-Spanish fleet, instead of having a, and, you know, historians are faulty, we have this perfect line. It's not a perfect line. It's actually best a curve. And you've got great big gaps between some ships and you've got other ships bunched up. And this bunching up is really, really critical because if you're going to break that line, your cunning plan is to come between two ships break the ship to your left by going straight through, you know, just blasting it to smithereens for all that ornate wind running it back. Then fire a broadside through the bow of the other ship. You turn round and then you engage the first ship um, side to side. You can't do that in many of the cases here because when you try to get through, it's not a simple line. Behind this is a couple of other ships. And so you find it's rather like when Nelson does get with the victory uh, to break the line and Harvey says, we haven't got any room. What do you want me to do? And Nelson turns around and says, it doesn't signify. Just smash into whichever one you want to. And that's what Hardy does. And it is an articulated lobby hitting the Redoutable. And it, we know the Redoutable is pushed because of the weight of a victory, you know, some considerable distance away from it. 
before it, it re-engages. So the bunching up is a real problem for us because it means that we can't do what we expect. The second thing is very different, of course, is Nelson doesn't have three columns. He's had to detach ships, six, and some of his most experienced captains to refuel. And this is because he's been hoping Villeneuve will come out sooner. And of course, Villeneuve didn't until he thought he was going to be replaced. So Nelson now has to improvise from three lines to two, but still doing that what that third group of ships was going to do. And this is a really important thing that we haven't really got our heads around. Bizarrely, our predecessors had, this was well known in 1913, but then has fallen out of our historical knowledge. What Nelson does is Nelson does not go straight at the Franco-Spanish point. Nelson paints for the van. So I want everybody to imagine you've got these two cons approaching. Yes, Collingwood will break through. But Nelson will turn towards the van to let them think that he's actually engaging them, which will make them sail all the further and therefore have longer to turn back through and support the centre. And then what Nelson does is Nelson turns the victory sails down that part of the French van, by which stage Villeneuve has at last put up his flag to show where the French commander-in-chief is. And that's when Nelson says to Hardy, get me through between those two ships, the Pussentau and the Veditable. Now, frustrating, we've known about this information, about the faint on the van, because Villeneuve's flag captain said it happened, the log of the victory actually said it happened, the master's log by a guy called Atkinson. And Atkinson actually wrote, um, and I'm just going to read this to you. It's in, a, it's in one of the Oxford College libraries now. But this is the log of Thomas Atkinson, mate of the victory. Still standing towards the enemy's van with all sails set, four minutes past 12, opened our fire on the enemy's van in passage down their line. At 20 past 12, in attempting to pass through the enemy's line, we fell on board the 10th and 11th ships when the action became general. And that's always been in existence. Now, what that means is that certainly explains a great deal of what happened. Because you hear that the victory is really shot away. Well, if you're going directly at the enemy and they're firing broadsides, how are you going to hit the wheel when it's at the back of the ship anyway? The only way the wheel's going to be hit is if you present it as you're sailing down the van. So this is what Nelson has to do. So that is something that doesn't go according to plan. The next thing that doesn't go according to plan is Collingwood's uh, column. You remember Colling Nelson's instruction, break them from the 12th from the rear. This was important for Nelson because Collingwood, he'd given Collingwood 15 ships. So 15 ships, breaking 12th from the rear means Collingwood has got superiority of 15 to 12. Collingwood doesn't do that. Collingwood breaks 16th from the rear which means he's in an inferior position of 16 to 15. So that doesn't go according to plan. The next thing that doesn't go according to plan is the arrowhead formation. Because the, you'll remember the guiding principle, maximum firepower, faster ships. And that works remarkably well. But the other ships in the column are slower sailors. And this applies to Collingwood ships as well, which means that the front of the columns, uh, of our columns, come under more fire and it takes longer time for the other ships to come into play. If I said to you, look, we're talking here about and time is difficult, but perhaps it's kicking off about any time between 12.15 and 12.30. If I said to you the final ships of both columns engage at three o'clock in the afternoon, that's what happens. For people who are wondering my reaction, my gob has just hit the floor, not for the first time on this podcast, I'll admit, but wow, on so many levels. Um, 
just just wow firstly the that nobody thought to check the ship's log is this the ship's log the... this is the master's log of the victory and the, and the problem we've got and you know historiography is is, is always a, a difficult problem as you know with your phd um but the thing was that this was known and this was put in in a very crucial thing called a bridge report in 1913. And I think the date's important there, 1913, where the Admiralty commissioned a review because he was actually worried about the point you made, this view that Nelson went pell-mell. And they got leading um, Navy people and leading historians from Oxford to review all the documentation. And they came up with roughly what I've told you. Unfortunately, 1951, there was a critical article written in the Mariner's Mirror, you know, this, this journal, Naval Mariner's Mirror, Mirror, and it was written by a rear admiral. And this is where it gets really dangerous, history. The rear admiral ignored all this about the fainting to the van. A letter appeared in the next edition saying, what about this? And the, and the rear admiral said, I don't believe this happened. This is not in Nelson's mindset. He would never have done that. His main concern was, you know, get up and get at him. And as a result of that, uh, this admiral, um, his report then became our accepted view of the Battle of Trafalgar. Even though it had been proved in 1930, this is not what happened. And that is a real, real pity, I'm afraid. Uh, and the Admiral, let's just name the guilty man, for example, who is a guy called Rear Admiral Taylor in the Mariner's Mirror. And he, he wrote when somebody challenged him, he said, nothing will induce me to believe that Nelson would have done this. And of course, all the evidence said that is exactly what Nelson did. It's in a way like Alfred Burney in the Hemant military probability, you know. And then you get people who turn around and say, well, actually, you couldn't get all these troops on the battlefield, you know. It, it just didn't happen. So that's where we are. Wow. I mean, I have a lot of love for folks in the armed forces who bring incredibly valuable perspectives on the work that people like me do as a historian. And they have perspectives that I can't possibly have because they've served and they, they've been under fire. And, and that gives you a, a really valuable lens through which to understand things. But there are times when, and I've had people do this to me, where they turn around and say, no, 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 you, you don't understand this is the way that things work and you just go but where's the evidence for that how do you quantify that you're saying you're inside somebody's head you can't be inside somebody's head you can have a perspective on part of their thinking but wow that's yeah. that's that's damaging isn't it um, it really is and that unfortunately it comes back to your one of your original questions this is where we've got to in the, in the history we had a much clearer view of what happened to Falga up to 1913 etc from 1951 and this is a problem popular tv stories now regurgitate what was the accepted post-1951 approach that's a pity because the reality is so much more interesting we do have this perception, and I'm, I'm just going to keep going with the, the bash, the myths mm -hmm. now. Um, we do have this per perception that, you know, sort of Royal Britannia, the Brits break through and then it's all over. Um, you know, the, the, the superior ability in terms of rate of fire, better seamanship, better manoeuvrability due to better seamanship all makes this a foregone conclusion. And logically, that couldn't be more illogical if you see what i'm saying there must be dangerous moments for the british and we've kind of touched on this already about kind of errors and and things where things haven't gone to plan that suggest that things could have been very very different so are there moments where you could look at this and go mm, this is hanging in the balance this could go badly wrong for the british i think the key point and nelson knew this was the risk was the first one hour of the matter this is the problem, because his arrowhead formation, his other ships can't keep up. So even though you've got these three very powerful ships, the Victory, the Neptune and the Temeraire breaking through, they're going to have to take the brunt of this. And if you look at the casualty figures, that's exactly what happens. You know, you've got really big casualty figures on these three leading ships, and then the casualty figures tail off in the rest of Nelson's column. Um, 
the that also applies in Collingwood. Because Collingwood has actually broken the 16th rather than the 12th, as was originally planned, he is outnumbered. Of course, his problem is the same. His slower ships aren't coming in. And provided the British can weather the storm for the first hour, then they know that they're going to win the battle. Because you're absolutely right, we are better sailors, we've got better trained staff, we've got better gunpowder, and by God, we've got a lot more um, ability to fire more rapidly than the French have, and we perhaps we talk about that. But when you are outnumbered, as we are in that first key hour, that is the potential of things going wrong. Now, of course, all you can do as a commander is mitigate against that, which of course is what Nelson has done in the approach, make more sail, etc., etc. One of his problems, of course, is there's not that much wind. You know, the, what little wind is coming is helping him, but it's not pushing the ships at the rate of knots that he needs. But when you get that breakthrough, you know, we rake the Bussentar, we fire into the Red Retabler, we then, well, we've crashed into the Red Retabler, and it's that time when the bunching up really starts to have an impact. If Dumanoir, the commander of the French van, had a bid, Villeneuve signal, turn and help the centre, that might have swung the battle. Dumanoir, and I guess we'll talk about him later, doesn't. He ignores the signals. So if a French fan had come in, that would have been very interesting, to put it mildly. Back on Collingwood's side, Collingwood's ships, basically, he's fighting a battle. His first eight ships have been in action for an hour against 15 of the enemy. Several had to deal with two or three at the same time because of his punching up. And, uh, and that's simultaneous. Now, Collingwood gets through it because of better gunnery and better superior sailing. He also knows that if, if he can actually hold on, in the next stage of the battle, the Franco-Spanish fleet can only commit another two ships for what he's already engaging. He actually will have another nine ships coming in to help him. So, provided you can hold on, you will automatically win this battle. But that first hour is really key. And Dumanoir's failure to turn really puts the issue, you know, it helps us win, I think is it. Okay, so let's let's unpack that. Why? <laughs> what does he do? Just run away? Um, so what's the thinking? Let's let's look at Dumanoir. Dumanoir is Villeneuve's second in command of too long. Dumanoir thinks he should have got the job and there is no love lost between him and Villeneuve. And that comes out throughout the whole campaign. Just to add a little bit of mix into this, the third French Admiral is a guy called Magon, who is more let's go and do stuff guys. None of them get on with each other. So this isn't ideal. And it is certainly the belief that Dumanoir sees Villeneuve's signal and decides to ignore it. He will take his van out of the battle. When he does finally commit, it is far too late. And we can see this again uh, later on the final battle in the campaign, the 4th of November, where, where Strachan actually takes Dumanoir's squadron, which he bumps into at a place called Cape Ortega off the Spanish coast. And the same thing happens there. Dumanoir starts to try and avoid the battle. And he's quite pusillanimous about this. And finally realises that uh, Strachan has got him and therefore uh, finally decides to give battle and has all his ships taken. He is court-martialed at the, and Napoleon insists on a court-martial. Unfortunately, it becomes a bit of a whitewash. And one of the captains who served under Dumanoir, both at Trafalgar and at Cape Ortega, is that annoyed. He gets up in, the, in front of a whole court martial, breaks his sword over his knee, and throws the pieces of Dumanoir and storms out. And that's summing up Dumanoir. Villeneuve wow. is badly let down by his 
French number two. There is a real argument here that, you know, would things have been different if Gravina had been in command of the whole fleet? Uh, Gravina is very, very good, very, very capable. It was never going to happen because, of course, the Spanish commanding a Franco-Spanish fleet, that wasn't going to happen. That goes against everything you've been talked about. Uh, and Gravina would not have won given superior British sailing technique and superior British firepower, rate of fire. Uh, but nevertheless, Gravina would not have made the mistakes Villeneuve made, and Gravina would hold people together, which Villeneuve could not do. Wow. Talk about the wrong man in the wrong place at the wrong time. Um, let's. I want to tap into something there. You were saying that a, diff, a change of commander wouldn't have made the difference. So is this, is this as simple as you stick the, the British fleet in amongst... Uh, Franco-Spanish fleet and because they are so well trained they can tip the balance provided that the tactical and strategic situation isn't radically against them does it come down to something as simple as that better training better drill better rates of fire more effective um, firing techniques better gunpowder better sailing is that is it as simple as that as that and morale one of the things you can't say about the uh, Franco-Spanish fleet of Trafalgar is that its people lack courage. This is not, you know, this is not like Villeneuve at the Nile, seeing what's happening at the front of a French fleet and scarping and getting the rear out totally and being haunted by this to his dying day, what he saw at the Nile. This is not the case here. There are amazingly capable officials. If you get rid of people like Dumanoir and Villeneuve out of the pecking order, the Spanish and we don't like talking about this, but the Spanish officer class are amazingly professional and very well trained. The problems are, what is good for the British is bad for the Franco-Spanish. I mean, let, let's look at, we've talked about firepower here. The British have things that the French and Spanish don't have. British have carronades for starters, one. Second, they have the actual trigger mechanism on their cannons which allows you to actually look where the cannon is being positioned and aim it better. Franco-Spanish ships don't have that facility. The rate of fire and constant training is astronomically different. The Royal Sovereign's figures here, and let me just try and uh, get this right for everybody. The Royal Sovereign can fire a cannon at the start of the action, obviously tails off as the action goes on, three times in five minutes. Now, then, in a 40-minute period, multiply that by eight. That cannon's firing 24 times. These are the comparable rates for the French-Spanish in 40 minutes. If you are firing a 36-pounder, you can fire five times. So 24 versus five. If you're firing an 18-pounder from the Franco-Spanish fleet, you can fire that once in five minutes. You can get eight shots. Well, that's 24 versus eight. If you're firing a eight pounder, you can fire um, you you can fire one in four minutes. So that's a maximum of ten. So your greatest firepower is ten shots in forty minutes versus the British twenty four. Now you add to that the fact that British powder is better than the French and Spanish, that British sailing and maneuverability is better than French and Spanish. You add to that also the fact that we are believe we are going to win. You add to it the fact that Nelson has worked with his captains and there's this tradition of support. So when you go in, you fire a broadside into one ship and then you go on and take the next. And this mutual support isn't really there because Villeneuve hasn't trained his or encouraged his people to do so. So in the celebrated incident where Hardy goes down and sees Nelson's been shot, Nelson 230 says, oh, Hardy, how goes the day with us? And Hardy's turning around and saying, oh, we're giving them a bit of a drubbing, so many have struck, uh, but the French van are now engaging, but I've summoned up three ships to help us. It's not three ships that turn up, nine turn up. 
you know. And one of them, believe it or not, is from Collingwood Squadron, who shouldn't have been there anyway, giving support. But that's the mutual support angle here. And so you can argue if rules are all in place, unless there is a disaster back to that first hour, it is going to be a foregone conclusion once you get all the players close together. That's staggering. One shot in five minutes. I know a 30, was, was that the 36 pounder that we were talking no, about? The there? 36 pounder can, uh, on the French Spanish side, can do one shot in eight minutes. I know. We are firing three times in five. That's staggering. What are they doing? Having a committee meeting about it? You know, sitting down and having a little bit of a rest? I mean, the, they've the, not been trained. They've not. This is purely the fact that they've not been trained, because remember, not that many of them, over half, have not sailed to the Mediterranean uh, from the Mediterranean or across the Atlantic and back again. They've been hauled, held up in port, and there is this view that, um, and unfortunately, a little bit of it is encouraged by Napoleon. You know, you don't need to leave port, but, you know, doing a blockade thing by the British, that'll wear them out. Testing them guns will make them use their gunpowder. Let's keep everything nice and good, and we'll be able to go out and we'll have a superiority, but that's not going to work. You have got captains of the Royal Navy that get their crews to actually train every day of the week except Sunday. You've got one captain of the Royal Navy, you refer to the 1812 uh, podcast you've done. Well, you know um, Broke of the Shannon. Broke of the Shannon is the greatest artillery air gun expert in the Royal Navy. He works his men seven days a week on gunnery practice. Seventh day, Sunday, they have a day off. He actually positions targets floating in the sea and says, go on, guys, have a go at hitting them. And that's what the Navy do. It's a staggeringly different culture, isn't it? In terms of the ethos behind it, the dedicated... Well, no, that's not to say that the, the French aren't dedicated. Uh, and I don't mean to cast aspersions there at all, because as you say, they fought with courage. But the, the commitment to details such as that, the things that ultimately win battles, is, is staggering. Um, one of the things that we inevitably have to talk about is Nelson, famously wounded by a marksman, firing down from the master of the French Redoutable. Um, there's lots of discussion about his death. Does he say, kiss me, Hardy? Does he say, kismet? My understanding is that the kismet is a Victorian creation. You're the expert. What's the truth there? We can only go off the eyewitness accounts and the evidence as always. There are five, everybody when Nelson, you know, is dying because of his hero cult status he already has, wants to capture every single word he says for posterity. And uh, the greatest one, of course, is beating Surgeon's Log. And he makes it very, very clear that it is kiss me hard enough. Of course, this to the Victorians was a big ogre. And so, you know, this idea of kismet came up. But, you know, if you understand where Nelson is, and I'm very grateful to Mick Crumplin, who, as you know, is the expert on everything to do with medical services. Um, Mick Crumplin tried to explain this to me, and he says, look, think of where Nelson is. He's paralyzed. The lungs are filling with blood. He knows he's dying. The thing that is still working until the end is his brain. If you realise your body is dying, the last thing you probably want to do is to have some human contact with another human being. And that is the kiss of Hardy. And, and Hardy does. Do we have Hardy's account? Because Hardy, I believe, said that he kissed him once on the cheek and once, and on, once the on the four, once on the forehead you are absolutely right this is him twice and that is from, that is from Hardy's account yes indeed so I mean the evidence is is pretty compelling um and we also have to realize it's a different age from the Victorian age it is more demonstrable you know um I've been doing his PhDs you know on broom when there's a rumor broom has died the Prime Minister, who hates his guts, is having an audience with the Queen Victoria. In comes the news, Broom has died. 
The Queen bursts into tears, and Melbourne, who can't stand room, bursts into tears as well. It's a more demonstrable, demonstrative age than our view of the high Victorian age, where, you know, you never show emotion. Absolutely, that creation of the inverted commas stiff upper lip, which has a long and relatively toxic legacy in terms of uh, certain people and, and mental health issues and, and all sorts of things that we, we won't dive into uh, here and now. One of the things that I think we sometimes dwell on is that you have this remarkable success in terms of ships captured, right? And yet in terms of the number of prizes, inverted commas, that are taken back, most of those are lost due to a storm, the, the, the big storm that follows the battle. Now, obviously Nelson's dead, command devolves on Collingwood. Is Collingwood to blame for that? And to what extent is that a missed opportunity for the Royal Navy to significantly augment the fleet in a way that could have been decisive? Mm, so, so really, really good question. So the, the French at Trafalgar lose 18 ships. One is blown up, the Achille, the rest, those 17 others are captured. And as you very rightly said, only four of those end up as prizes. The issue is this thing about what you do after the battle finishes. Nelson had already given the signal and had already told Hardy, which was that after the battle, the ships will anchor. You anchor not only to resist the storm, but to actually make repairs and to get everything sorted out so you can move off with the ships. That is Nelson's plan. When Collingwood takes command, Collingwood sees things differently. Now we've got to make, put one point in here. Collingwood, it's not generally known, has been wounded in the battle. So that may affect his judgment. But also there is a, Collingwood has a reputation of being a better sailor than Nelson. And we also know that from the observatory, uh, the Royal Observatory um, in, in, on the coast of Spain, that whereas there was a belief that the storm was coming in the morning, the pressure gauge hadn't actually got worse in the afternoon. The storm actually comes the next day. And Collingwood may have felt that he could actually get the fleet with its prizes out of the Cadiz Bay, which was notoriously bad for shoals, get it out to open sea, which would allow basically the, the prizes to be looked after um, and would avoid the shoals that actually lie to the south of Cadiz, closer to Cape Trafalgar itself. What Collingwood hasn't really taken into account is the amount of work, the amount of damage that has been done to both side ships. The amount of time it would take, and of course we are talking about it's the 21st of October. Daylight isn't on side here. Remember, partial firing continues until 4.30pm when Nelson dies. And indeed, firing does continue until actually 5 o'clock. So darkness comes in early. Now, unfortunately for Collingwood, the storm comes in the next day and it comes up. And then on the 23rd, it drops again, which then allows the sortie on the French and Spanish who could just finally capture some of the ships. The storm then picks up to a great intensity. We are talking force 10, force 11 here. This is really bad news. And it sets in. And so a lot of the ships are wrecked um, because they simply break the cables. Some of them, Hollywood makes a conscious decision of when this sortie comes out, and in fairness to the, 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 the two guys, the French and the Spanish guy in the sortie, they actually recapture two of the ships that's been taken. Unfortunately for them, they lose four in the, base, in, in the action, so it's two up, four down. Collingwood makes the decision he hasn't got enough resources to withstand another sortie, so he deliberately destroys some of the ships. Is it a missed opportunity? Yes, I think it is. But at the end of the day, Collingwood makes the decision based on his own ability. And I think it's very interesting that Collingwood never justifies his action. Interesting. That is interesting. Here's a willfully awkward question to round this off, John, because this has been an absolute masterclass. 
uh, from you on well, you're very kind, but I wouldn't agree with that, but it is, as long as it helps people, that's all that matters. But please go on, what's the final question? So by the time of Trafalgar, Napoleon has moved his army from the Channel Coast to fight what becomes the Austerlitz campaign. There are naval battles after this point with the French Navy. So are we guilty of overplaying Trafalgar's significance and falsely portraying it as the battle that saved Britain? I have a problem with this as being defined as a battle that saved Britain. But at the end of the day, what's important is what people believed at the time. Now, we, of course, know with benefit of hindsight, Ulm, Austerlitz, Jena, Auerstadt, etc., etc. That's not what people at the time believe. The news of Trafalgar, admittedly dampened because of the death of Nelson, gives people a feeling of massive relief in England. And you see that from letters. People start feeling more confident about stuff. It's actually uh, also accredited with, lead, uh, with giving the incentive to end the slave trade, to abolish the slave trade, because people feel we're not under the cosh any longer of invasion. This wonderful thing has happened. Uh, second thing I would say is this. Uh, we know that there's going to be Austerlitz, we know that's going to be Jena, etc. But what happens here? Suppose Austerlitz, and we know that the Russians and Austrians don't get on. Suppose Russia had pulled back after Austerlitz and made peace with Napoleon. Prussia wouldn't have been engaged. So Napoleon would have been able to turn the Grande Armée back, fully blooded now, move back to the Channel Coast, and game is still on. What happens with Trafalgar is if you just look at the ship, the number of ships on the, in, for Britain in the Channel and the Mediterranean, ignore everything else, before Trafalgar, we have got 61 ships of the line. The French, the Spanish and the Dutch, like the France, of course, have got 95. You then put into the equation, what happens with those losses after Trafalgar. The British get 10 ships, four from Trafalgar, two from Cape Finisterre, four from Cape Ortega. So their numbers go up to actually 71. But the losses of French and Spanish have been taken that 95 superiority down to 55. So all of a sudden the balance has decisively switched. What can Napoleon do? Well, Napoleon, of course, can build more ships. And some historians tell us, you know, by 1814, he got this major ship. That's absolutely true. But some things were had changed. In the Trafalgar campaign, we lose three senior commanders from captain to admiral. Nelson, obviously, but Duff of the Mars, Cook of the Bellerophon. The Franco-Spanish lose 14. They lose Gravina, the Spanish Admiral, they lose Magon, a really capable French Admiral, and they lose a lot of, of the command of, of the captains, including the very capable but small in number Spanish officer Cadre. You can build as many ships as you want, you need capable people to lead them. The other thing is the casualty rates, particularly with this battle and the storm. The casualties are poorly on the Franco-Spanish side. And the Spanish have also been decimated by yellow and scarlet fever in the coastal towns. There isn't enough people to man the ships before Trafalgar, there certainly isn't afterwards. But the most critical thing about Trafalgar is morale. Because although the French will rebuild the Mediterranean fleet, the French Mediterranean fleet, when it does sail, in 1811, the minute it finds is on its tail, you know, the great Sir Edward Pellew, it turns tail and heads back to Toulon. It never engages. And although we've talked about other battles, what battles are there? Well, the San Domingo in 1806, February, which is basically almost like finished business. We could add that to the Trafalgar campaign because it's those ships that Nelson would send to get resupplied and think we've missed out on the battle. Here's an opportunity to stop the French and we'll get a bit of a glory. But that's seven ships of the line versus five ships of the line. 
The only next naval battle is a rather strange Basque Roads in 1809, as you know. But again, there, it's 11 ships of the line versus 11 ships of the line. This is 33 versus 27. Trafalgar is the last big fleet action in open water of the Napoleonic Wars. If you think that happens in 1805, Napoleonic Wars go on to 1814, surely that is the significance. Of course, with you being a, uh, a historian of, of the Peninsular War, etc., etc., our superiority navy helps a certain guy called the Duke of Wellington. We can do anything on that Iberian Peninsula because we have got the Royal Navy in support. 100%. So I think Trafalgar is amazingly significant. Of course, you can argue, did it save Britain? But certainly at the time, everybody believed it. Which is a wonderful point to end on. John, this has been such an education. Thank you ever so much for joining us. Do come back again, because I am completely up for more of just you kind of letting rip with your vast knowledge. This has been absolutely phenomenal. And thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure. And thanks to you. and Thanks to everybody for listening. Before you go, do me a favour, like, subscribe, share and leave a review. It'll cost a couple of seconds of your time, but it makes a huge difference to the algorithms which push this podcast out around the world. If you're interested in becoming a supporter, you've heard my spiel on this often enough in previous episodes, but essentially everything gets reinvested into growing the content from tech upgrades to new kit aimed at bringing you more variety to the show. There are perks for regular supporters. Check out the Patreon link for more on that. But if that's not for you and you want to leave a one-off tip, you can do that via Ko-fi. Each hour of podcasting has anything from four to six hours of time poured into it, so your support in whatever form it takes, financial or digital, is hugely appreciated. A particular thanks to my Emperor-level patrons, Mark Stoos and JC Kaiser, my Commander patrons, Ger Brown, Jane Davis, Bob Burnham, Marcus Cribb, Matt Bone and Zach Golby, and my mentioned in Dispatches patrons, Jeff Maple, Ed Koss, Indiana Fats, Mark Dewhurst, Jim Getz, Stephen Coulson, Colin Fieldhouse, Ryan Diamond, Alexandra Leon, Josh Keeney, Gareth Copeland, Ross Flowers, Jim Deary, Lucy Tatner, James Bevan, Rory Muir, Lynn Dawson, Beatrice DeGraff, Anna Vakulenko, John Haynes, Brendan Teeling, an anonymous Canadian, Alex Churchill and Rob Griffith. Join me in a few days when Naval Month will continue. But until then, I'm Zach White. This has been The Napoleonicist. Take care of yourselves, my friends. Stay well, stay safe. And as always, thank you for listening. (laughs) 